In fact, on the screen, it says Genesis 16, 1 and following. It's what the FF stands for. I told you all that story before. My, one of my mentors in ministry, it was a, a co-op program I had in senior year of high school, took a Hebrew class. And the final was start in Ruth 1, verse 1, and translate until the end of class. And see how far you can go. But it said Ruth 1, 1, FF. He didn't know what FF meant. So he translated Ruth 1, verse 1, and he turned it in. And everyone just looked at him. Like, how in the world are you done? It's just one verse. <laughs> I think I was ready for something challenging. Right? And I think he was able to go back and, you know, never <laughs> explain what happened. So, um, so I don't know really. Uh, I have notes through verse 6 because I eventually had to stop because um, I knew I had way too much material. So I may already have one to three weeks worth of material here just to let you know um, and to, to prepare you. And that's just the six verses. So let's read the first six verses of Genesis 16. And we'll go from there. Now, Sarai, or I'll probably just call her Sarah, much like Abraham. He's supposed to be Abram, but you know how it is. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Well, here we go. What a mess our boy Abe has himself in, isn't he? And it's all predictable, isn't it? Maybe it's just me getting older. Um, but also I think because we're getting more pagan. Um, most of the problems I see that we are dealing with as a society are easily, easily preventable. Most of the people who, uh, their lives are full of drama and chaos and whatnot, I just think all of this could be fixed immediately. And all of it could have been avoided quite easily. Here's an example of that. Right? Uh, but simply saying, well, if you didn't do these things, then you wouldn't have the problem. You really need to see the heart function that is going into what leads to, to these actions. Um, so let's, let's just introduce it. Well, this is typical of, of, um, of Genesis. We have a moment when our hero has a great moment of faith, which is immediately preceded by a moment of failure. So we have this pattern of faith and failure, faith and failure. <laughs> That's why it's there. That's right. So think of a few examples. Adam. Adam starts out, and what's, what's his story? He, he takes ownership of the garden. He's going to work and till the land. He, he, he names the animals. He, he, he is brought into uh, unity and intimacy with, with his wife. And then what happens? Well, Genesis 3 is what happens. He fails his prophet, priest, and king. We looked at all that. Noah builds an ark. It takes a century for him to do this. It's a long time, right? He didn't even get early retirement. Um, he, he builds it. He, he saves humanity. And then what happens? He's in another garden uh, eating from the fruit of a tree yet again. And his son, particularly in this case, grandson, is, is cursed. It's a repeating story of Genesis 3 with Adam. In Genesis 12, we meet Abraham. His story really begins. And what happens? He, he moves his family uh, from Ur to Haran to the land of Canaan. Uh, he believes the promises of God. But what does he do immediately? In the same chapter, he risks the covenant and the promises of God by handing his wife over to the Egyptian pharaoh. And now what do we have? Chapter 15, we have this climactic moment where God reaffirms and seals the covenant with Abraham, assuring him that you will have a child. This land will be yours, so land and lineage and all that. And oh, what does he do in the very next chapter? He risks all of it. So we have faith followed by failure, which is a pattern we see not just in Genesis, but the whole Bible. We see it in our own lives, don't we? Well, not you, but everyone else around you certainly is, is like that. We, we have these moments of, of great faith and great triumph often followed by those moments of struggle. You know, I, I'm a big sports guy. You know this. And teams are most vulnerable when they have success in a game. 
So you all know I'm a soccer guy. Love it. Forgive me. No one else cares. But, but it is so hard to score in soccer that when you get a goal, you convince yourself, well, we're going to win now. In fact, I made a comment. We played Owen County uh, last week that we went up a goal. And uh, about five minutes later, the ball was kicked. It's, it's Owen County's goal kick. And the referee was getting angry because no one went to go get the ball. And he starts shouting. And I said, and I, I know the referee. He's, he's assigned me a lot of games. been really good to me. And I said, hey, we ain't getting it. We're winning. What do I care if the, the clock keeps ticking down on them? Right? It's not my problem. And that is how I coach and play. Right? I am willing to kill the clock if, if it means we, we win. Okay? With subs and everything else. And all the goofy stuff goes. But, but in every sport's like this. If you have this big, massive dunk, right? You're like, yeah, yeah. And you do it against a really good team. They can be on the other end of the court in three seconds flat scoring against you. Now who looks foolish? But this is true in life. These moments of triumph are often lead to moments of failure. And in moments of, of spiritual depth and those, those great moments often lead to moments of great temptation. And we see that. So Jesus has the baptism and, 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 and the Father says, this is my beloved son, all this. What follows? The temptation 40 days later. This is typical of, of, of our experience. And the Bible reveals this. Well, we also need to note this. There's three scenes that are very similar to what it is that we see here, okay? In Genesis 12, we said Abraham uh, hands his wife over, right? In Genesis 20, I believe it is, yeah, Genesis 20, he'll do it again with a, a, a Canaanite king named Abimelech, okay? So, so those are the starting ending points. Genesis 12, Abraham uh, does that. In Genesis 20, he does the same thing with two different kings, Right smack in the middle, we get this story. What is it? Sarah hands her husband over to another woman. Uh, and and it's, it's the same pattern we see in each of these. Yet what is striking is we need to see each of these stories as a repeat of the Garden of Eden. In fact, the language tells us this. Look at verse 2, the end of verse 2. Abraham did what? He listened to the voice of his wife. Now, where have we heard that language before? That's what God condemned Adam for doing to Eve. Now, now, just I feel like I have to hit pause there, right? That's the staple button. It's the easy button, okay? And, and you need to pause there. And, and what the Bible is not saying, men, don't listen to your wives, right? That's foolish nonsense. Yeah, because that happens naturally. Yeah, yeah, right. Actually, actually, I did that when I walked here. I completely walked by something. I just feel awful, awful about it. Um, and she, well, you don't care. Anyways, because it just goes in one ear and out the other, unintentionally. Anyways, um, um, later on in the Bible, there's a similar story here. We'll talk about it if, if we can get to it. It's where David's son um, violates uh, his half-sister. So David's son, David's daughter, you know, that story. Um, it says there, she says to him, um, uh, listen to my voice. Listen to what it is I'm telling you. So, so his problem there is he didn't listen to the voice of a woman. Okay? So, so we, we, we see that language. Okay? So, so don't, don't abuse. Take that one verse and take it out of context and out of what the Bible says. So in verse 3, notice Abram's wife took Hagar. Now, where do we see that? It's the same word in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Eve took, and then notice, she gave to her husband. Hagar is the fruit. And so she takes and she gives. Same thing that Eve does. So uh, all of this violates the marriage covenant from Genesis 2. Notice that the one is supposed to become two. Um, right? So you have the, the single person. Now you have two people involved. The two become one. We, we spent a whole week talking about unity throughout Genesis and, and the Bible. But now notice you've got one becomes two, which becomes three. Yeah, yeah, and then you have the kids in, it's just going to get really, really crazy. And this doesn't work. Everywhere you see bigamy and polygamy in the Bible, it is a disaster. And, and in fact, this isn't the first time we've seen this scenario. The first bigamist in the Bible is a descendant of Lamech. I think we'll come to him later. And he has two wives whom he, he seems to, to use for his own profiteering, basically. So Abram is more like a descendant of Cain than a descendant of Noah or even of Seth. So, also, I want to highlight this, this outline here. I find this stuff fascinating. Uh, the Bible is a really written, well-written literature, if you just let it be, um, and read it 
as an ancient book. So Sarah has no children. At the end, Hagar has a child. All right, so you, you see the bookends right there in the middle. Here's the year. So it's been uh, 10 years, right? All, all that, that sort of stuff in, in verse 3. And then right there in the middle, Hagar has, has her sons. Very well organized and structured um, as, as, as a, as a uh, unit storytelling. So let's start with the uh, proposal, verses 1 to 2. Um, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Notice right away we meet all the characters. There are three characters here. Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And all three of them are just terrible human beings. Some of you all know I've, I, uh, I, I wasn't a big fiction fan for many years um, until recently, probably in the last, uh, well, shortly before we moved here, I, I started reading classics. That's how I got in Beowulf. Um, but I've been reading more modern fiction here lately. And the reason I did that was, was I thought I need to read stories written about real people. They're not Christians. It's not a Christian story. right? I, I just need to read popular fiction and see what everyone else is reading and to help me understand the world we live in. Okay. So the first series I read, I'm, I'm, I'm like into the second book, and it hit me. There is no one good in this story. Now, there's six books, and it's two different authors because the guy dies at the third book, but it's kind of a trilogy. I'm thinking, I don't like any of these people. I mean, as a protagonist, I'm rooting for this person, this person, kind of got two main characters. But they're terrible human beings. I mean, they use each other, they abuse people, they're, they're quick-tempered, they, they've got a terrible past, and the present isn't much better, right? And then it kind of hit me. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> For one, theologically, man, there's no good people, really. But also just sort of practically. We've chucked holiness and godliness out the window. So what, what are your left is, is people with very questionable motives. And you're left sort of rooting for the lesser of the evils, right? right? So if you take out the really bad guys in the story, what are you left with? Some people who would otherwise be villains in any other story. <laughs> I mean, it just kind of struck me that that very feeling. You get this here. Abram participates in an Ill, illicit uh, 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 relationship. Sarai encourages it, leads her husband down a path of sin. I always tell young couples as they're getting ready to, to get married that, that when it comes to intimacy, usually it needs to be the wife who is the barrier. You need to be the one who says, look, this is how far we go and no farther. Not just in the bedroom, but in a lot of areas. Most men are dumb enough and evil enough. They'll try anything at least three times before they stop. Okay? And, and a good wife will say, no. Right? I'm with you here, and this is where the, the, the bridge is burned. Right? There's nothing there. Right? Trump's wall is real high at this point right here. Okay? Or Biden's wall. They're both building walls, so I, I don't, I'm not red or blue here. Go cards. But um, um, so Sarah's doing that. She's clearly exercising a lack of faith, all that sort of stuff. And then there is Hagar. Now, Hagar is a victim here, right? Don't, don't miss that. She is a victim. In fact, the way she's introduced isn't by giving us her name first. Notice how she's in, introduced. She's introduced as Sarah's female Egyptian servant whose name is Hagar. The, the writer wants us to see her title. Her position matters most to Sarai and Abram, not her person. This is contradicts that she's made in the image of God. She's in the story, and she's given to Abram because she's a nobody. She has no status. She's no rival to, to Sarai, at least initially. Oh, and her name happens to be Hagar. But even with that, what does she do is she responds whenever she gets pregnant with saying, I'm better than you. Right? She, she stirs contempt and envy. So, so she, she's guilty too. There's no, no one good in, in the story. But that phrase Egyptian servant, we talked about this uh, when it first came up. How did Abraham and Sarah get Hagar? Do you remember? It's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 16. I don't think I, I put it up there. Yeah, here it is. Remember that you have the promise in the first four verses, first six verses, right? Genesis 12. And then Abram lies about his wife being a sister, you know, and Pharaoh takes her in, all that sort of stuff. Well, at the end, right? So, so you remember, it's, it's, the irony is um, Abram's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but in chapter 12, he's a curse to the nations. So Pharaoh responds by blessing Abraham, which is a fulfillment of that promise, right? that the nations will, will, will bless you. Um, and we get this. For her sake, Sarah's sake, he dealt well with Abram. 
He has sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants. There's Hagar right there. So the only reason he has Hagar is because of his failure in chapter 12. You, you, this is this good storytelling, for one. Is, is this mistake leads to this bigger mistake, which is going to cause other big problems, right? And so uh, the irony is very clear. Hagar, the slave, goes from being in Egypt into slavery in Canaan. What's the story in Exodus? At the end of Genesis and into Exodus, we have uh, uh, Canaanites, Jews, who are then go into slavery in Egypt. It's even more irony. Abraham takes a slave from Egypt. Later, Pharaoh takes Jews into slavery in Egypt. In fact, it's, it's even crazier than that. From this Egyptian slave, Abraham has a child who then turns one of Abraham's great-grandsons into an Egyptian slave. It's the Ishmaelites that the brothers sell Joseph into. I mean, the Bible's a really well-written story. It's almost like only God could have done it. But you see there, verse 1, she bore him no children. Now, in ancient Near Eastern culture, this was a badge of shame. Uh, this was a big area of shame because, and you'll get these verses in the Bible here and there that, that connect infertility with cursing from God. Now, we don't believe that, okay? Now, there are times when God has closed uh, the, the wombs. I, I think I've got a few verses on that later. Um, but what we see here is um, um, they've tried and they've tried and they've tried. At this point, they've been trying for 10 years. And that's not counting the decades before that, when they first got married, may have gotten married as teenagers, you know, 20s, been trying for decades and still no child. And, but this also establishes the conflict of, of the narrative. God promises a child, yet despite those efforts, uh, no child has, has arrived. Um, and so they desire a good thing, but have been robbed of that blessing. Now, remember that in, so far in the story of Abraham, we talk a lot about his faith, but you can't talk about his faith without his patience. In Genesis 15, God's, you remember Abraham asks, where's, where's my line? Where's my lineage? Where's my land? Right? Remember what God said? Ah, it's going to be like hundreds of years from now. You'll be dead long before any of this stuff happens. That's when faith requires patience. But what we have here, particularly with Sarah, not limited to Sarah, is her lack of patience is a reflection of her lack of faith. And so the conflict here is set up that that she bore Abraham no children. Um, So... uh, female slave named Hagar there in verse 1. In the Hebrew, the first verse, the first word of verse 1 is Sarah. This, you can see this in English too. The first word is Sarah. The last word in Hebrew of verse 1 is Hagar. I think that's on purpose. It pits these two women against each other in the very first verse. And that's part of why you have her position before her person also. It, it builds that tension there. Now, um, uh, she is only mentioned in two chapters of the Bible, chapter 16, chapter 25. Her son Ishmael, their descendants will show up quite, quite a bit. Um, and you'll have Ishmael of this union. Later, of course, you'll have Isaac. These two will be rivals. Now, this is a trope in Genesis. So you get Cain versus Abel, Ham versus Japheth, Isaac versus Ishmael, Jacob versus Esau, Joseph versus his 11 brothers. Very common trope in Genesis. Now, these conflicts don't end with that generation. You don't get, okay, Jacob and Esau didn't get along. Good thing their grandkids get along just fine. No, 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 it's worse. And so if you read the prophets with Genesis in mind, you're you're reading, oh, Edom, right? And you're like, who's Edom? Well, you got to go back to Genesis. Oh, those two brothers still fighting after all all this time, right? Now, do we do this today? Of course we do. Of course we do. America's made up of immigrants, right? We all came from somewhere else. Did we all come here and say, I'm Irish Catholic, I'm Dutch, or I'm German, or I'm Russian, or I'm, I'm, I'm British, or I'm, you know, whatever it is. Did we all come together and say, ah, oh, no, that stuff matters. It's all good to get a lot of Canasting Coca-Cola theme song, watch over. No, that's not what happened, right? We segregated each other, you know, so, so you get your Irish Catholics in Boston, right? You get your, your Brits in Virginia, named after the Virgin Queen, Jamestown, named after King James, right? So we got all this, and then we start saying, well, of course that city's like that. It was run by such and such group for all those years, right? We still do this. Now, 
I'm Scott Irish. I don't know if that's supposed to make me like prone to drink and fight or not. But, but I, 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 I don't look at you know, the Brits and, and do my best John Knox impression and think, you know, down with the Queen or something like that. I don't, I don't do any of that sort of stuff. Yet we still kind of, we can't get away from a lot of this stuff, can we? Um, and so this, this continues th- throughout it. Um, um, I already mentioned Joseph being stowed into slavery by the Ishmaelites. Hagar means flight. It's a Hebrew name. So, so there's some debate as to the genesis of her name. We, we would presume she has an Egyptian name. Maybe she was renamed by Abraham and Sarah to have a, have a Hebrew name. Or uh, this is the name the writer gave because it's, it, it, it foreshadows what's going to happen, right? So this is typical. Noah means rest. Adam means mankind. So he's the first of mankind. Eve means life. Sarah means princess, which is sometimes true, right? You know, uh, remember that... Uh, 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 Ruth, the, the story of Ruth, all those names have these ironic meanings. Like um, Ruth's sons are named sick and dying. <laughs> and within the first few verses, they get sick and die. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of that in the Bible. Her name mean, means fleeing. So in verse 6, you see there, uh, she fled. Hagar fled. All right. So, so this, this makes sense. She is the first slave that I can recall mentioned in the Bible. Now, there are slaves, obviously, I, I quoted Genesis 12, male and female servants. I can't think of another slave in the Bible before Hagar. And so, if you're wanting to develop a theology of slavery, I think Hagar is a good place to start. Is there anything here positive about slavery? Think about it. If, if, if you take someone against their will and make them work in the field, in, in, in domestic home, or whatever it is, you feel like you have the right to make them do anything, including surrogacy. This is part of the evil of it. And and so there is nothing good with the institution of slavery, let alone how the slave is viewed. She's identified as that Egyptian servant whose name is Flea, Flight, Hagar. So so, so it already contradicts the image of God language of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, And it is a story of oppression and, and injustice. So Sarah's pain there in verse 2 is made evident in the language she uses. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Striking language, isn't it? God did this to me. Now, she's received a promise from God that she would have a child with Abraham. And Abraham, no doubt, has told her this. Remember, this is Adam's job to share with your wife the promises of God and and all that sort of stuff. And he he, he sort of failed in that area. Remember the prophet, priest, and king? Uh, and Abraham seems to be failing at this. The promise is made to Abraham, the promise is made to Sarah. She's part of the deal. And what is her argument here? What you see as a great promise, I see as folly. She's been with Abraham from Ur to Haran, from Haran to Canaan, to Egypt, back to Canaan. She's seen wars with nations she don't care about, chieftains she don't care about, cities and, and, and what she don't care about. She doesn't have a real home. She's a sojourner in a strange land. She, 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 she seems to be just done with this. What good has come to her following Abraham and, and all those, these goofy promises he, he believes in? Well, it has been 10 years and still no child. 10 years. But the Lord has prevented me. Which is typical of us humans, isn't it? Amid our pain, we blame God. This is not an unusual response to grief and suffering. In fact, if if we were to take the people in this church alone who did not leave amid suffering and grief, how many people would we have here pre-COVID? How many people we lost because in in moments of crisis they lost faith? I've shared some stories with with you before on that, and it's pretty typical. Here's a family. Here's an individual. Here's a couple we may never see because of this terrible tragedy in their lives. Now, for some people, it draws them to faith. That's why I think ministers who at funerals uh, don't preach the gospel should, should leave the ministry. Because that is a moment of, of, of is an opportunity where the lost will welcome you to share with them the hope we have in Christ. And it's the moment they really need it. And you're up there telling stories to get laughs. And, and laughter is a part of, of, of the grieving process. Of course, I don't mind doing any of that. You've heard me tell jokes at funerals. But if it's not without a gospel, what, what's, what's the point? And so, um, so here she, she wants to, to blame 
God. Now, that's not unusual with mankind in the story of Genesis. Can you think of a story where um, something bad happened and they blamed God? First parents. That woman, which you should never start a sentence that way. You men writing that down, you can put that in your Bible, right? Proverbs 32. Never start a sentence with that woman of mine, okay? Right? Don't, don't, don't do that. That is a big, big no-no. Make sure Chris gets that. You know, you need to write that down for him. Um, this is gospel, Chris. This is gospel. Um, the woman whom you gave me, it's your fault. And, of course, what does she do? She blames the serpent, right? It, <laughs> Anytime you tell your wife to calm down, you know what she ain't going to do. She ain't going to calm down. It goes the other way too, but we, we, don't, we don't ever mention that about men. Yeah. Um, now, let's be honest here. Is it true? Has God prevented Sarah from getting pregnant? There is an element of truth here, isn't it? Sure it is. He's sovereign over the womb. He can open, he can close, he can do all that. Yeah. In fact, it's evident from what we saw in chapter 15, God has said, you ain't having kids for quite a while. Hang in there. When I decide you have kids, you're going to have kids. So clearly he's sovereign over that. And then there's other stories in the Bible that seem to indicate that God opens and closes wounds. Let me give you just one example. The story of Jacob with Rachel and Leah. Remember that Jacob, the one he loved, couldn't conceive. The one he didn't love could conceive. Right? When we get there, my goodness, we're going to play um, all the daytime drama uh, talk shows where people throw chairs. We're going to have a run in the background so that, so that you can see that this nonsense is just human existence. It is a wild story, right? Uh, they, they start, anyways, we'll get there sometime. The Lord visited, well, that's, that's, that's not the verse. Um, yeah, we'll go with it. Now, the Lord visited Sarah as, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and she conceived. Notice there, it is God who fulfilled the promise leading to her conception, okay? Now, this is the story of Rachel and Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. He did the same thing with Sarah, didn't he? Not the same language, but it's the same idea. By the way, he'll do the same thing with Mary, won't he? It's the whole point. She says, I cannot conceive. It's impossible. Don't say nothing's impossible with God. By the way, there's the inverse of that story, isn't it? The story of Elizabeth, who is the next Sarah. Elizabeth and Zechariah are the Abraham and Sarah of, 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 of the story. So Elizabeth cannot conceive for the opposite reason of, of Mary. Mary is of the right age. She's unmarried. Elizabeth is beyond the age. Therefore, it's equally impossible. Both are impossible biologically and scientifically. But God does the impossible by bringing both to, 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 to conception. God opens the wound of both of them, which meant God had closed the wound before. At the same time, when we say this, this is the mystery of God's sovereignty and, and agency and natural cause, right? We would not say, yeah, God sent a tornado to kill all of you people, right? We wouldn't use that language. We would say God is sovereign over the natural world. God is sovereign over science and, and, and all that sort of stuff. God is sovereign over human affairs. At the same time, there is responsibility for us all. So what I don't think is Abraham and Sarah say, ah, God's going to get us pregnant, uh, so one day I'll just wake up pregnant. We, we don't have to play a role in this. No, they do have a role in this, to, to try to conceive. That is the mystery of God's sovereignty and, and the role that, that humans have. But with that said, she says, go into my servant. That's a term used throughout Genesis and the rest of the Bible for marital intimacy. Uh, now, on the one hand, this is a bizarre arrangement for you and I, right? I mean, no wife that we know of, not in our circles, <laughs> not the vote like us, would ever say, honey, I found this lovely young lady. I want you to have relations with her so we can have a child. It's bizarre to you and I. Not so bizarre in the ancient world. Biologically, according to ancient Near Eastern law, the child, though biologically would be Abraham and Hagar's, legally would be Abraham and Sarah's. This is why this is so crucial we, we get this. Now, pause there. That relationship, that law, probably does sound familiar. In fact, it's becoming a major ethical issue that Christians are not talking about. It's called commercial surrogacy. Now, we can talk about surrogacy, but I really want to focus on commercial surrogacy. And I, I'm very, 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 very much against it. 
We could describe it as wombs for rents. And we've seen an increase of this with uh, the increase of homosexuality. I don't know if you, you know much about um, biology, how it works. Two men, two women cannot conceive. And so their options are adoption or surrogacy. Perhaps the most prominent example that used this that I know of is the CNN guy, Anderson Cooper. Came on to say, you know, we were really blessed. We had a cigarette, all this sort of stuff. And everyone says, bravo, brave. But, but what you're not getting in the background is how do you get a child, an infant child this way, right? And the way you do it is you have to rent a womb. Washington State and New York, I know are two states, there may be others, have legalized uh, um, commercial surrogacy. Now, this exploits and victimizes poor women. Who do you think is offering their womb for rich men? It's not rich women. It's poor women. So what do these women become? They become a means to an end, an end to satisfy predominantly homosexual men. Not, not exclusive, but predominantly homosexual men. And that's a real problem. I think John Stowe Street, he's done a lot on this, actually has helped me think about these things. Uh, he's the uh, breakpoint guy to replace Chuck Colson after he died. I love Stone Street, listen to him every day. The only way to claim a right to what is impossible, same-sex couples cannot conceive children, is through a transactional workaround with women whose wounds they wish to rent. In other words, the sponsors of these bills that was eventually passed in New York and Washington State want the reproductive abilities of mothers divorced from the mothers themselves. They want the wounds, but not the women. I love that line. Of course, those who suffer in the cynical economic exchange, that's another thing. Women, poor women, become commodities, something you can buy. I got a problem with that because of a little thing called the image of God. All right, this is what the story of Hagar is. But we're so civilized, guys. We put all that stuff in the past. I'm so glad that's over with. The economic exchange, like in each and every chapter of the sexual revolution so far, are women and children. Women and children suffer in, in the sexual revolution. After all, where are all the daddies? And who does that vic victimize? In commercial surrogacy, what you're saying is, let's put a child that we know the child is at a disadvantage, a lack of privilege, if that helps, because there will not be a mother. You're victimizing this child, let alone turning, turning him into a byproduct of, of, of your desire. Um, as Haver points out, another writer, he quoted earlier, surrogate mothers or gestational carriers is the... Um, Orwellian term uh, are at risk of permanent sterility or other serious health consequences from ovarian hyperstimulation. So it's not like you, you rent your womb one time and now you can go to college. You have to do it over and over again. It's not good for the body. The children whose rights are not even considered will grow up, and as we've seen from other situations, they'll want to know who they are and where they come from. Many understandably condemn how they were conceived, bought, and sold like products. The European Parliament has denounced surrogacy as, quote, an act of violence against women, unquote. In countries like India, whose citizens stand to profit from renting wounds through rich Westerners, have recognized the built-in exploitation and outlawed the practice. Yet if activists and legislators get their way, New York, it will, in New York, of course, they've passed it, it will soon welcome commercial surrogacy. By doing so, they'll be endorsing the idea that families, including children, are commodities to be bought and sold. But it's always the women and children, especially the most vulnerable ones, who will pay the highest price. You tell me what's the difference between what happens to Hagar here and what we're doing to women now. It's all about freedom, isn't it? It's funny how we victimize other people for our own pleasure and freedom. And let us notice here again, it's not an accident that the surrogate mother in this story is a slave. A poor woman who has no rights. Um, there's a book I had to read for BTB in literature class. I can't think of it. Y'all can maybe help me. It illustrates this. It's, it's, a, it's more for middle school age. Uh, the, gi the Giver. The Gift, The Giver. I think it's The Giver. No one familiar with it? The homeschool family is. Um, it, it's where everyone has a certain job, right? And, and you're the main, he's going to be the giver. So he has to uh, 
He has to get all the memories and all the stuff. But one of the jobs you can be is a surrogate mother, basically. You're, you're implanted with, with, with an embryo. And, and there's a comment saying, um, you'll only have that job for a few years, and then you're, you're basically executed after that. It, it's, a, it's a dystopian novel that starts out really positive. But no one's read the book, so that's okay, other than this fellow Holmes, of course. Um, However, with all that said, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this was a common legal workaround for infertility. Because she is the property of Abraham and Sarah, the child they produce will be the heir. Let me actually quote from you an actual law. I can give you a half a dozen of other examples. This is probably the clearest. Uh, this is from the Lipit Ishtar Law Code of Mesopotamia, law number 27. It's going to be on your, on your test. If a man's wife has not borne him children, but a harlot from the public square has borne him children, he shall provide grain, oil, and clothing for that harlot. The children which the harlot has borne him shall be heirs. So what is she? She gets paid with food and money and then done. All right? Just, just, just a, a wound for rent. Surrogate mother. That's all she is. All right? And, and now you have laws like this because this has become a common practice. All right? Um, so legally, Sarah is well within her rights to prostitute this slave of hers for her own benefit. This is a good time to remind you, just because it's legal doesn't make it moral. This is something that both parties, if I can be critical of both, have forgotten. We, we're like the New England Patriots. How far can I get without being told I broke the law, Right? You know, what was it? Joe Montana said, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Was that Montana quote? If not, it is now, right? I found it on the internet. So, so just so if, if you have a politician that says, well, I didn't do nothing wrong. You can't send me to jail. You should be able to pause there and say, okay, maybe that is true. doesn't mean what you did was right or moral, right? Legal and moral are not synonyms. Sometimes there's overlap. I think it's immoral to kill someone. I think it should be illegal to kill someone. Hey, look, they agree, right? In other places, something could be legal that is immoral. So it is within her legal rights to do this. It is not within the will of God that she, she does this. Now, what is striking is that later on in the book, and we'll get there sometime within the next millennium, Jacob repeats the same mistakes as his grandfather. Let me give you two verses in Genesis 30. Rachel said, here is my servant, Bilhah. So remember, Rachel and Leah, all that drama. One can't conceive, eventually does conceive. The other one can conceive, but she's not loved. She has a lot of kids, and she thinks, this child will save me. He'll love me. He'll finally love me. There's, there's a prince inside of that, that beast, right? Not the little girls do that now. And, and eventually, they get tired of the whole scenario. What they each do, Rachel and Leah, they say, here, here is my slave. Sleep with her and have kids. And guess what? He's got 12 sons, one daughter, who herself becomes a victim of, of sexual abuse later on, which then leads to a lot of violence. But we, so now you have 12, 13 kids from four women, legally from two women. You think that's going to create some problems within the household? Verily I say unto thee, it will. It will, every time, every time. Now, you look at the story and say, look, you already know where this story's going to go. If you've never read this story before, you know exactly what's going to happen here. Hagar and Sarah ain't going to get, long, get along, and Abraham ain't going to do nothing about it. You already know this. It's so preventable. What is it about us humans that we choose foolishness over wisdom? It's amazing, absolutely amazing. So both Lee and Rachel do this in, in Genesis um, 30. Now, this is, therefore, Abraham and Sarah's forbidden fruit. We mentioned this earlier. She takes and gives. Remember that fruit language. When we first started Genesis, we, we did a whole study of fruit and trees in Genesis. This pops up over and over again, trees and fruit. It starts out in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. But what happens is it's constantly fruit, literal fruit like in Genesis 3, or metaphorical fruit like here, becomes an entrapment. And so he's being fruitful, but really he's, he's eating of the forbidden fruit. This is their fruit. The two will do anything, absolutely anything, to get the one thing they really want. Isn't this sound familiar? I want this one thing. If I can get this one thing, I'll be happy. And then I'll, just, I'll have everything I ever wanted. I'll never need anything else, 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 else in my life. If I can just get this one thing, whatever it might be, fame, education, uh, uh, a lot of followers on the Tic Tac, whatever it is, 
Uh, listening uh, uh, recently a podcast about Lance Armstrong, and it just struck me. The story, you know Lance Armstrong, the, the Tour de France guy? Yeah, I got, there he is. There he is looking good. This is before we knew who he really was. Uh, or ignoring who we really knew who he was. But, hey, it, it sold, sold a lot of Nikes uh, with stuff like this. But um, story Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France seven times. I didn't know the story before. I knew his cancer story, of course, and the comeback. And that's how then he ends up marrying a, a music star and all that, who suddenly is country now. I don't get how that works. But anyways, in 1995, following the Milan-San Remo race in Italy, Lance Armstrong finished in 73rd place. And among his teammates, he was not at the bottom of, of his team. He was then considered the best American rider. He finished 73rd place. Now, I, I watched a lot of baseball growing up, okay? And I learned something. If a guy is mediocre this year, and within five years, he's the best in the sport, you should start doing an investigation immediately. Barry Bonds was an excellent home run hitter, probably would have made it to the Hall of Fame, would not have broken a single record. But he was a great player of San Francisco. I was a Giants fan back in the day in Reds. Then all of a sudden, at the end of his career, he's hitting home runs left and right, as did Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and all the other ones. Like, you're at the twilight of your career. Now you're starting to hit a ball? And everyone's like, I just can't believe it. Can you, can you really, can you not believe that? I mean, I've got a few ideas how that happens. You know, I can hit a home run if you give me enough steroids. And I was, I was a ground ball guy. Just get the first base, okay? Run as hard as you can because it ain't going in the air, right? But give me enough steroids, how I do it. So he finishes 73rd place. They get on the bus, and all, the, all his teammates are laughing, joking. And he is furious about it. Furious. He says, how can you all be laughing? We got embarrassed. We got defeated. And I want to be number one. I'm like, hey, man, look, we get it. We're all disappointed. We're, we're just trying to, this is our way of coping with, with, with our failure here. He said, well, I'm done with this failure. He said, look, I'm going to start taking what I call EPOs. And later he added the steroids and other stuff. It starts the EPO. It's a banned substance in, in cycling. And I assume other sports. He says, and if you're not going to take it with me, you're off the team. What did he want? wanted a win. And he was willing to do anything to get that win. And he got that first win. It's the comeback kid and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't enough. He's got to get more. Two, three. The record, the American that had won the most Tour de France in, in straight was three. He got his third. So he had to get the fourth to beat that record. And then the grand record, I believe, was six or seven. So he got his, his, his six and he got his seven. So, so now he's greatest Tour de France rider in the world. And then 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 he gets caught. He wanted his one thing, his one thing. He'd do anything to get it. I'm glad that doesn't describe any of us. How many lives have been ruined because we, we, we thought we wanted that, that one thing? You know, one of the things, we, we'll save this for later, but something you need to see in this story is, is that Sarah got that one thing she wanted. Her success, however, was her greatest failure. So what she thought would be the answer to all of her prayers and all of her desires, all of the emptiness, turned out to be the source of the greatest conflict in her life. Willing to risk her own marriage for a child. Is having a child a good thing? Yeah, it's a great thing. We should want children. Children are a blessing, usually. But that one thing turned into a crisis because it wasn't the right thing, the right way. In fact, notice the language she used. We've got to go. We're not going to get out of verse 2. I was afraid of this. I might have enough material here for three weeks. Verse 2, I shall obtain children by her. Did y'all's translation say anything else? Mine says obtain. Build up from? What translation you got? New King James. New King James. Okay, we could almost assume King James says the same. Same thing, maybe, unless someone has King James and obtain. obtain. So build up from good. The word is build. It's not good English. Build up from like what does that mean? I shall build up from you know a child. That doesn't make any sense theologically and in the narrative. It makes complete sense. This word I'm going to show you every time it shows up thus far in Genesis. You tell me there's a pattern. Starting here in Genesis 2. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, 
Made he a woman. So what I do these words today is King James, so forgive me. Or you're welcome for, for some of the others, I guess. Made he a man, right? So that word made is the same word used here in chapter 16. It means the build. God built from a rib a woman, a woe man, right? Genesis 4, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch, not that Enoch. And what did he do? He builded. Is that supposed to be built? You English Nazis, help me out here. Is it built? Not build it. I'm going to start using build it because it's in the Bible, right? Did you, did you all grow up, you had those Christian kids who need an excuse to, to use dirty language? And if, the, if it was in the King James, they thought it was okay. I'm going to start using build it for the same reasons. Build it at Walmarts. Um, build it a city. Now notice, God built woman, right? Two became one. Cain goes and builds. And so those words are connected. Cain goes and does the thing that God did in the garden. He's going to go make his own garden, but it's, it's a city. He's, he's going to go build it. In chapter 8, Noah builded an, ar- an altar unto the Lord. Yeah. And um, chapter 10, genealogy, out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. Chapter 11, they said, go let us build us a city and a tower. It's Tower of Babel. Now, that sounds a whole lot like Nineveh and Enoch, the city of Cain, right? Let us go build. It's the same word used in Genesis 2 that God built a woman from the rib. Genesis 12, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And, and there he builded, builded he an altar unto the Lord. You'll see the same language in, in that chapter, he builded an altar. So I didn't have to put it all up there, okay? That is all the time it shows up here in Genesis until we get right here. Do you see a pattern with, with any of this? Sarah, like God, believes that she can create, that is, build for herself a family. This is the choice of wicked men thus far. Not only wicked men, because Noah and Abram build an altar, but that is theocentric. What they build using the gifts God gives them as creatures to worship the Creator. We talked about that distinction Sunday night in, in Revelation 4. What Sarah does is she thinks she has the wisdom and the power and the ability to build for herself a family. That's the language of Babel. Let us build for ourselves a city so we can touch the heavens. Sarah says, let us build for ourselves a family so we can fulfill the promises of God. What a temptation that is. They may, there may also be a wordplay here. The word for build is binah. The word for son is bin. Let us build for ourselves a son. Let us bin, binah, a bin. So you get names like Benjamin. It's a Hebrew name, meaning son of Jamin, I guess. One last thing we, we already talked about. Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. There at the end of verse 2. So Sarah's actions mirror Babel. Abraham's action mirrors Adam. Not good, is it? And one of the things we've talked about is there are three major falls in the Bible, all in the early chapter of Genesis. There's the fall of Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, fall of Genesis 6, perhaps the fall of cosmic beings, and Genesis 11, the fall of the nations. And Abraham and Sarah are mirroring those falls. Not good. By the way, these are our heroes of the faith. That is either going to scare you to death or it's going to encourage you. It probably depends on where you are right now. (laughs) Now, the listening of of one's voice shows up later. Let's turn to Genesis 22 and we'll we'll be done. Genesis 22. This is something that that really stuck out to me. The Bible Project was helpful for me to see, see this. So put the events of Genesis 16, the birth of Ishmael, with the events of... Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. Put them together, okay? How did they get this son? So that whole story. I've always isolated chapter 22. No, it has to fit within the narrative. So Genesis 22, verses 15 to 19. The angel of the Lord, we're going to meet the angel of the Lord maybe next week, maybe four weeks from now, the rate we're going to go. But he shows up in verse 7 of Genesis 16. That's actually the first reference to the angel of the Lord in the Bible. And we didn't reference that last week. Because uh, there's so much there, we had to skip a lot. Angel Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now, is, is the angel talking as the Lord or is the angel 
Right. You remember we talked about that. There's the distinction, but unity between the two. It's almost like he's Jesus. Um, be, uh, by myself, I've sworn to declare the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Let me just point out there. Notice the language, your son, your only son. This shows up in the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. His begotten son probably isn't the best English there. His one and unique son. That language shows up elsewhere in John. John 3.16, best example. Verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. There's more fruit language, seed language, as the stars of heaven and the sand is on the seashore. Now, we're familiar with that because Genesis 15. This is a reaffirming the covenant made in chapter 12 and chapter 15. Here is given in chapter 22. Uh, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Ah, does that sound familiar? So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went to go to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Because you listened to my voice. So you see how the two stories are connected. In the one, he took for himself forbidden fruit. He listened to the wrong voice. Had he listened to the voice of God, he would have said, no, this isn't what God promised. But he listened to the wrong voice. By Genesis 22, what does God do? What he's saying is, with Ishmael, you are trying to proclaim with Sarah, this is my son. With Isaac and the sacrifice of him, what you're declaring is, no, this is God's son. You're finally listening. He's the promised son. It ain't about you. It's about God's promise and what he's doing in the world. Listen to God's voice. No one else's. Because you can't trust it. So this son is the Lord's. So in trying to save his lineage with Ishmael, he damages it. But when he surrenders his lineage of Isaac to God, he saves it. It's the beauty of the story. And we got two verses into it. <laughs> so... Next week, we'll look at what comes out of it. Any questions we can talk? Oh, I went over. Yeah, Danny. I think this is, this is so interesting because of what Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Mm -hmm. Abraham was the father of the 